Welcome to another episode of Scramble on my podcast. On this episode of my podcast, I am going to pass through data and evidence and evaluate the very pertinent question that faces the Indian population and the Indian media right now, whether the Modi government is actually anti-Muslim. To evaluate whether the question really has any substance to it, I have been passing through days worth of data, thousands of files, and I hope the hard work shows. My podcast is available on a variety of platforms from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, to YouTube, Overcast, and Google Podcasts to support my endeavor, to support this kind of individual data-driven journalism that I've been trying to do as far as the Indian political scene is concerned. Please like the podcast. Please share it if you like it enough. Also, leave a review, leave a feedback. I always read them. I'm always cognizant of them, and I'm always trying to make it better for you. Since this podcast required me to do nothing short of a very in-depth and comprehensive analysis of the data, this podcast is going to be split into two episodes. This is going to be part one, where I pass through the theoretical, the perceptual, and to some degree, the practical aspects that either confirm or disconfirm the question or the doubt whether the Modi government is actually anti-Muslim or not. There is going to be a follow-up part two that I would request you to check for more analyses and a final conclusion on the subject. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, let's begin. So the question that we're going to try and answer with this podcast and through the hours and days of data that I've analyzed is if the Modi government is actually anti-Muslim. Now, the purpose of this podcast is that I've observed that there is a very great divide between the media trials and the legal trials. And the public finds it very hard to navigate around the, around the two. Media trials are short, quick, distortive and unsubstantiated. And even though the judiciary in India is largely independent and the higher judiciary, judiciary considerably away from corruption, legal trials are dragged, long-drawn, prone to pre-proceeding in procedural vulnerabilities like evidence tampering and need substance beyond element of doubt. The great ever-growing difference is that of most likely suspect but not ruled by the judiciary in view of insufficient evidence and most likely innocent but distorted by media for sensationalism. My number one attempt is to parse through that quite systematically to evaluate whether the Modi government is in fact Muslim hate encouraging. Now, there's a certain few things to remember. One, here I don't take into consideration the Hindu-Muslim pro-BJP, anti-BJP sentiment. Emotion is more malleable and more prone to manipulation than reason. In fact, perception is cognition plus bias. I'm going to evaluate facts and instances placing them in the backdrop of their context and pretext and try to answer if in fact the charge is accurate or not. Two, media sensationalism and media bias is a very real phenomenon. As for the reasons of the two, wait for another podcast. Likewise, the tampering of judicial and investigative process is a real phenomenon. I will leave that to the expertise of a legal scholar to break down. Any of my listeners are welcome to contribute. I will host you on this show if you do a good job of breaking down the vulnerabilities of the investigative or judicial processes in India. Third, this is an opinion piece. However, I've tried to not let bias sink in here, but it may show. Frankly, I don't care. 
you're going to label me anyway. So I can only stand by my integrity. All I'm going to say is that I researched for days on this data, maneuvering around hours of cognitive dissonance and overt contradictions to make sense of all of this. All my sources will be in the description, except ones that are easily found on Google or reported across mainstream media sources. Fourth, my attempt is to ease the process of thinking for you. I do all the hard work and you are left with only one task, an honest inquiry to ask yourself if you have preconceptions that color your notion. Fifth, in the process of compiling my data, I have limited my analysis to the 2014 to 19 era of the Modi government. Apart from that, I have used data that I've found trustable. This data is mostly independent, either from the judiciary or the government records. However, in the post-truth era, the veracity of the data is always in contest. So I've tried to accumulate data from other independent media sources as well. I have limited myself to actual speeches and remarks from video footage and not from how the media reported them. If at all your claim is that the data from government bodies is fudged, even after listening to the full extent of my analyses, you have the door open to contact me and send me contradictory data. My Facebook is Prakhar Gupta. My IG is PRVKHVR. I flipped the A's into V's. My email is mailme.prakhargupta at gmail.com. However, if you're going to make a claim that the, that, the government control, that the government controls the data, say from the Ministry of Home Affairs, then I think by proper application of logic, it is your onus to prove your allegation. I have faith in the institution of democracy, or at least have moved with the assumption that the democratic checks and balances are largely in place. Finally, I know most of you have either already or will find my views as biased and right-leaning. Frankly, again, I don't care. In a regular case, I wouldn't even make a case. But let me just drop one point here that might instantiate a particular left-leaning bias that I, have, that I will take throughout. I call this the test of implicit responsibility. And I'm going to try and hold BJP to that implicit responsibility wherever the news is tiable. What I mean by that is any and all right-wing governments, because they often operate on socially majoritarian lines, are supposed to be more than careful in issuing remarks, frivolous, direct, or otherwise, that might alienate the minorities. To that effect, they must go one step further than their left counterparts to ensure that their communication does not cause even implicit alienation, leading to social disharmony. So even where causal inference cannot be drawn between the effect and BJP's involvement, the choice to ignore the same or even allow the same is seen as impermissible in my view. To begin parsing out if the Modi government is in fact actually anti-Muslim, it is pertinent to look at the theoretical foundation of BJP. And even before that, it is pertinent to look at the theoretical foundation of the parent socio-cultural body of BJP, which is RSS. Here are a few quotes that I picked up directly from RSS's website. When the British left, the population was at a risk of being more disintegrated, posing a direct threat of separatism and violent implosion. Dr. Hedgevar said often, Even if the British leave, unless the Hindus are organized as a powerful nation, where is the guarantee that we shall be able to protect our freedom? Quote number two, Anyone who is the national of this country, irrespective of being a Shev, Shakt, Vaishnav, Sikh, Jain, Muslim, Christian, Parsi, Buddhist, or Jew, by way of his creed or mode of worship, is a Hindu. As Justice M.C. Chagla had forcefully put it, the French, with their sense of logic and precision, call Indians irrespective of their caste or community, the Hindus. I think that is a correct description of all those who live in this country and consider it their home. 
in true sense we are all hindus we are all hindus although we may practice different religions i am a hindu because i trace my ancestry to my aryan forefathers and i cherish the philosophy and the culture which they handed down to successive generations quote number 3 if we only accept this proposition and call ourselves hindus by race it would be the greatest triumph for secularism the theoretical foundation of the bjp i picked up a few quotes directly from their website as well secularism a leitmotif of indian politics has been distorted beyond recognition secularism had emerged in the west as a reaction to clash between papal control of politics it talks of separation of the state and church in india neither was there a theocracy ever nor it can be in future indian culture is of equal respect of all religions it can be translated as sarva panth sambhav or panth nirapeksha unfortunately in india secularism has been reduced to minority appeasement that too at the cost of majority this is what sri lal krishna advani called pseudo secularism when we say ram rajya or dharm rajya we mean an ethical governance based on rule of constitution it is not linked to any faith or or way of worship so contrary to popular belief it does seem like when the modi government speaks of hindutva and a hindu rashtra a hindu nation they don't mean to divide or use the term hindu along religious connotations at all from a direct theoretical reading of almost everything that's on their website it seems like what they're trying to suggest is hindu is a more cultural a more nationalistic identity and not a religious identity the next logical question would be whether people see it so like right like the next logical question would be whether people really take the meaning of hindutva in the same sense as bjp or rss intended to be or whether if people see a difference what whatever the theory says is irrelevant right so in uh, in an article published by huffington post in 2018 they collected and analyzed data from organizer which is rss's mouthpiece um organizer essentially conducted a survey asking people the way how they saw the term hindu in context to hindutva here are the findings here are the rough findings the link is attached in the description and you can go and see and 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 see see what that means there is a roughly 50 50 divide when it comes to whether people see the term hindu used in the context of hindu hindutva to be inclusive of other religions like the way rss and bjp intended to be roughly 50% do 47% don't and 2% don't know what to say they don't know what they think about it this seems to suggest that either the people who see the integration are blinded by a self-serving bias or the people who see hindu in hindutva to mean only hindus as a religious group are misled by many media sources that have tried to quote unquote illuminate a difference however one might say that the practice of the rss and bjp suggests that they say something and do something else and thus the media illuminates that difference now let us examine that claim now it, there is a, there's a certain thing to note when we analyze the practice right that certain particular factoid is this india is an extremely diverse country and has often and consistently been a pandora's box of communal and other hate crimes the phenomena is not new however the media salience could be new due to a variety of factors such as social media availability ab- abundant fake news and and mainstream media sensationalism likewise there could be an actual surge of instances too and the blame on media could be less substantial as some might claim to analyze the practice i looked over a dataset that came my way by means of an rti filed by a certain mr amit gupta in 2017 this rti instantiated and and numerically listed the number of 
communal violent cases, the number of injuries in such cases, and the number of deaths in such cases. The first metric, again, is the number of communal violence instances that I'm trying to analyze. Between the block of 2004 to 2017, there were 742 incidents a year on average. In UPA's first term between 2004 and 2008, there were 771 average. In the second term between 2009 and 13, there were 724. And in Modi's regime under 2014 to 2017, there were 720. Statistical difference is about 3% and that too in a pro-BJP direction, yet the difference is deemed insignificant. However, there is some disagreement between the data provided in the RTI by the Ministry of Home Affairs Human Rights Department directly and the data found with the NCRB, the National Crime Record Bureau, a subsidiary of the Ministry of Home Affairs tasked to collect crime data. The most stark difference has been to the effect of the number of communally violent instances in 2014 where the RTI response by the Human Resource Department of the Ministry of Home Affairs reports 644 instances, while the NCRB data says it's almost double at 1227. Factly.in, a data-driven portal, broke the news about such differences in 2015. Now, this difference could be attributed to one of two things. Either the method of data collection. While the MHA takes into account data gathered from State Police and Intelligence Bureau, the National Crime Records Bureau compiles incidences on the basis of FIRs registered by the state police. The other, as factly.in resonates, could be blamed at the behest of malpractice on the government, police, and intelligence's end. However, there's a few interesting things to note here. FIRs are first information reports only. They're considered as only prima facie reasons to investigate, which often leads to inconclusive instances of criminality. Two, there could be a rampant paranoia at the instance of a right-wing party getting in government, which could have inflated the figure by means of a misattribution of any criminal activity to have religious undertones. Third, and the most interesting, is that the figures of the victims in the criminal crimes in the year 2014 from both ends are roughly the same, that is 2000. That makes me question if there is, after all, government malpractice or just a difference in data collection metrics. Finally, the National Crime Records Bureau counts hate speech in their figures for criminal violence, while the Ministry of Home Affairs reserves itself to physical instances of violence. A more descriptive picture can still be painted by studying the trend of injuries and fatalities in these communal violent cases. In terms of communal deaths, between 2014 and 2017, which is roughly the Modi period in analysis, there were a total of 390 deaths reported in cases of communal violence. That, divided by 4, is an average of 97.5 deaths a year. Between 2004 and 13, the two UPA terms, the two INC-led UPA terms, there were 1,216 total deaths reported on the same measure, an average of 121.6 deaths a year. This trend suggests a 20% or a fifth of a decrease in favor of the Modi government. In terms of injuries inflicted during cases of communal violence, in the UPA 1 and 2 era, a 10-year block between 2004 and 13, an average of 2,183 people were injured in a year. In the 2014 to 17 block of the same time frame, the block where the Modi government was in power, an average of 2,222 people were injured on the same metric. The statistical difference and increase in the Modi regime, a pro-Congress-led UPA figure, is 2%. It is considered non-significant in statistical computation. 
However, these are cases of communal violence en masse. There is no data available, at least, of a complete or comparable nature to do the math with respect to the direction and victims of such violence. Whether more Muslims were hurt or more Hindus were killed or more Christians is unidentifiable except for isolated reports. Now, there is some, um, some scholarly statistical research on the subject as well. Anirban Mitra, a professor of economics at the University of Kent, and Debraj Ray, a professor of economics at NYU, have an, economic, have an econometric research that sheds light on the statistical relationship between the number of seats that BJP candidates occupy in the Lok Sabha and communal violence. The relevant portion from Mitra and Ray 2018 paper reads as follows. Here we briefly discuss the role the presence of the BJP has had on communal violence. The careful reader would have noticed that in each of the regressions in each of our tables, we have used BJP's share of Lok Sabha seats as the regressor. The coefficient on this variable is positive throughout. However, it is statistic statistically significant only in some of the regressions, particularly in the sample without Ahmedabad and when restricted to urban households and conflicts. This might suggest that the role of BJP vis-a-vis -vis religious conflict is limited only to urban areas. To put it in a more simpler language, a more understandable language, what that means is essentially that they took the X independent variable, the X variable as the number of seats that the BJP occupied in the parliament at a particular time and the Y variable, which is a dependent variable as the number of instances of communal violence during that time. So if there is a 1% increase in say the X variable, the number of seats that the BJP have, how much has the instances of communal violence increased? And when there is a decrease, how much has the instances of communal violence decreased? What they found was that there was no statistically significant difference in most cases except for the cases of communal violence in urban areas. What is pertinent to note is that according to the last census survey of 2011 in India, only 30% of the population lives in urban India. 70% still lives in rural India. And this figure too is only statistically significant in a positive direction when Ahmedabad is excluded and urban households where there is already an existence of conflict is included. Which is essentially to say that only in pre-existing conflicts in urban areas is where they found a positive statistically significant difference with the BJP getting more seats in terms of cases of communal violence. That is the end of part one. Please follow up with part two for further analyses and final conclusions.